They say there are no two neighbors more diverse than Australia and Indonesia. Orang bilang tak ada dua tetangga yang punya perbedaan sebanyak Australia dan Indonesia. But we think more alike than you know. Tapi kami pikir ada lebih banyak kesamaan dari yang Anda tahu. Welcome to Oz Indo in 30. I'm Samantha Yap. Selamat datang di Oz Indo dalam 30. Saya Nurina Safitri. Former President Megawati Sukarno Putri and former Prime Minister Julia Gillard are prime examples of women who have held the most powerful positions in Indonesia and Australia. Mantan Presiden Megawati Soekarno Putri dan mantan Perdana Menteri Julia Gillard adalah contoh utama dari kaum perempuan yang berhasil menduduki jabatan tertinggi di Indonesia dan Australia. This should represent progress in gender equality, but Discrimination against women is still alive and well in both countries. Seharusnya ini mewakili kemajuan dalam kesetaraan gender, tapi nyatanya diskriminasi terhadap kaum perempuan masih saja terjadi di kedua negara. The road to gender equality is still a challenging one, but it has to start with women empowerment, the key to development. Perjalanan menuju kesetaraan gender begitu menantang, tapi harus dimulai dengan pemberdayaan perempuan yang menjadi kunci pembangunan. In the spirit of 2017 and the Radical Women's March movement, we think it is fitting to begin our series with a discussion about women and power. Merayakan tahun 2017 dan aksi turun ke jalan yang dilakukan para perempuan sedunia, kami merasa diskusi seputar perempuan dan kekuasaan begitu pas untuk memulai serial podcast ini. On the show to talk about women and power in Australia and Indonesia, we will be joined by Fitri Bintang Timur, an entrepreneur and researcher from Jakarta, Indonesia. Fitri is the country director of Astronaut Technologies and a researcher at the Center for Strategic and International Studies Indonesia, and recently a new mother. I caught up with her at her office in Jakarta. Hi Fitri. So, who is Fitri Bintang Timur and how did you become an entrepreneur and a researcher? I'm always curious to learn about new things. That's how I am. That is actually how I become a researcher because I always want to learn from everything and everybody. So I ask questions, I read books, and um, I analyze why is it like this? Is it a pattern? And if it is a pattern, so what can we say about the future? Well, I guess that's uh, come up from a curiosity perspective. Uh, how I become an entrepreneur is a whole different story. It's a, it's a family uh, business. I kind of been thrown into it and I have to just continue. So we created an, an online uh, interviewing platform that will help people to do interview that uh, actually help people they don't have to go uh, to stuck in a traffic jam to attend an interview. You can just use this online platform called Astronaut and um, you can do it an- anywhere. Let's back to your research. What is your main area of focus in your research and how did you end up being focused on this topic? If we remember in Indonesia 1998, there is a reformation era and the military was forced to take uh, th- take their bag out from politics so they have to go back to their barracks. It was encouraged by Munir, the late Munir, uh, to, to actually think about the military. They also have a human rights and they need to uh, be supported, their welfare and their uh, work for 
the state despite what happened in the New Order era. At that time, I, I won a scholarship to study defense management in ITB, Bandung Institute of Technology. And at that time, we're a cohort of 25. Um, ideally, 50% of them are military and 50% are civilian. The civilian was uh, people from uh, journalists, uh, they're scholars, they're um, also business people. I take on interest in studying women in the military and police forces because it was um, a subject that is understudied. Our Australian guest will be Jane Alstrand. She's a talented Balinese dancer who teaches dancing. She's also a PhD candidate at Queensland University and is currently working on her thesis about women in politics in Indonesia. Jane joins us from Queensland. Jane, how did you get involved with Balinese dancing? It started on a trip to Bali when I was still in high school, uh, but I didn't actually start learning until much later. But ever since that moment when I first saw Balinese dance and just became really intoxicated by the beauty of Balinese arts, um, that stayed in my mind. But I only really started to learn it uh, officially in 2011 when I joined the Dharma Siswa program, which is a program run by the Ministry of Education and Culture in Indonesia. In my free time, um, I teach students from all over the world, really. Before, I, I, I used to work with uh, refugee and migrant students, and I taught uh, a group of girls from different parts of the world, Africa, Iran, Afghanistan. Uh, now I teach mainly Indonesian people and it just gives me so much joy. And did you do that while you were doing your undergraduate degree? Was that part of it? No, I graduated back in 2000. So uh, this was uh, after I started working, I became a uh, public servant and gradually became less and less excited with what I was doing and then started to dream about, you know, those memories of Bali and and I looked for the possibility of, of going there and actually learning the culture, learning the arts in a, in a more uh, official way. So I found the scholarship program and applied for it yeah while from my office while I, well, I should have been working but I was googling um, dance, studying dance in Bali. <laughs> you were a 2016 Kozindi delegate and it was held in Bali the place that you are very fond of so what were your impressions during that conference? It was in my kind of my second home in Bali so I just went in there with such a, a positive frame of mind. I was just happy the whole time and also slightly overwhelmed because um, I'm still I'm studying again at the moment and I saw all these other young Indonesian and Australian people and, and what they've achieved so far in, the, in their uh, professional development. So I was kind of in awe. Maybe in future I hope to be successful like them. In this episode, Fitri shares her insights about how the roles of Indonesian women in the military are limited, and Jane talks about the challenges women in leadership positions face. Our guests on Women and Power.
So, Fitri, with your focus on the topic of women in defense and security in Indonesia and Australia, in your opinion, how does Australia fare in the role of women in defense? I think Australia is advanced um, for for Asia. It gives example on lifting barriers for women to serve in all services, including the combat roles. It is something that even the US and the UK actually follow suit on Australia. So I think it is interesting to learn how Australia can get into that uh, decision. And what do you think some of the factors hindering equality in the armed forces in other countries are? I think it's a social perspective. Uh, I have discussion with military men from several countries and they always said like we don't have the heart to send women to the battlefield to deployment especially in conflict areas what what happened if they get hurt what happened if they uh, they get kidnapped and something bad happened to them it kind of it somehow the imagination of women actually get hurt uh, while there's actually military men are surrounding her it actually make men feel bad that they're they're not masculine enough to protect her and it's actually bad for the cohesion of the unit therefore the head would think like okay if i put women in the same unit then they would actually not work uh, seriously they're gonna actually try to get the heart of this woman or they're gonna try to protect her so uh, the unit strength is not the maximum so i think that was deliberation and of course there's also issue of like physical strength because female are being considered as weaker sex compared to men so it's always uh, that perspective that actually stop uh, the opportunities going for women to, to to be even considered to try uh, the challenges or, or the entry point tests that actually okay for men to take it and how does Indonesia fare in the role of women in its armed forces? Uh, improving, improving. Um, Indonesia start to, because of this globalization, because of Indonesia also deploy peacekeeping forces to the United Nations, they kind of learn uh, the military uh, personnel and the police personnel actually see what women internationally can do and it inspires them to actually open up more the opportunity for women for example um, Indonesian women actually allowed to enter the um, police academy uh, post reformasi around 2000 and then only uh, 2013 so uh, four years from now uh, uh, four years ago uh, Indonesian women are allowed to enter um, military academy in uh, Magelang so um, this year we will find we will we will see the first grad uh, alumni, uh, female alumni from this military academy, and see whether they can actually reach the same height. Because if they they previously because they cannot access uh, fair education, the same level of education, they don't get um, uh, opportunity to get promoted as fast as their male counterpart and it actually um, hamper their promotion and actually hamper their um, uh, excel in rank and beside that uh, women are also uh, reluctant to be deployed to conflict area that's also uh, hamper their career promotion so i guess with this improvement that women can actually get uh, um, 
foreign deployment in peacekeeping, um, it actually opened up uh, more opportunities for women. However, um, for women to be able to serve in peacekeeping forces, uh, military women personnel need to have a signed consent form from their husband. Meanwhile, the military men don't need this consent form from their wife. So I think there is a sort of unfairness there. But when I asked the, the head of the uh, institution at the time, he said like, we need to ask the family permit. What happened if the 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 women actually left their children who would take care of them and who will take care of the husband as well and yeah so we we need the husband consent therefore so yeah um, I am still learning um, and I think Indonesia is still learning how to to allow their women to actually work in the same way as men do. That sounds like a very complicated situation, Fitri. Okay, next questions. Why does the virginity test still happen today and what merit actually does the Indonesian authorities see in it? If we read the statement of the head of armed forces and police forces, they clearly think that um, virginity tests is still deemed necessary. Um, when I do when I give a lecture in Indonesia Defense University and I give um, my, how do I say, objection of this uh, test, even the, the student there, especially the military, would say that oh, we think this is um, important and you need to do this. Why? Because we don't want to have loose women in the institution. What happened? Because it's, it's a male uh, dominant uh, organization and if we don't select the women entering, uh, you know, there would be um, an affair or, or things that uh, we don't want to, uh, the scandal that we don't want to see, to be seen and, and it's, it's not going to be good for the, the name of the institution and therefore it's a, for them, according to them, it's a good, um, how do I say, um, preventive measurement. Jane, your PhD thesis is about women in politics in a democratic era in Indonesia. Can you tell me a bit more about what you have found so far? I examined the representation of women during the transition from the SBA, the Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono presidency, to the Jokowi presidency. And one thing I could really see is uh, a kind of anti-elitism and uh, class struggle taking place in Indonesia and certain women have become symbols. So we have women such as Susi Pujastuti, the Minister of Maritime Affairs and Fisheries, and Tri Rismaharini, the Mayor of Surabaya, and these women have become really icons of uh, grassroots, uh, rakyat, kind of low, low culture and this kind of mobilization against the old elite conservative guard. And then on the other hand, we have these old school elite figures such as, uh, I'm sorry, but Annie Yudiono. Uh, she became uh, a site of contestation towards the end of the SBA era uh, when she was seen to be kind of failing to connect with uh, the people, no matter how hard she tried, and that was quite obvious in the 
uh, coverage of her activities on Instagram. So it, it was kind of an empowering moment for the younger generation, especially those uh, who are quite savvy with internet uh, and technology. Also, women who are quite successful, such as Susi Pudjastuti, have uh, certain really down-to-earth character, character traits, and that's been a really popular uh, a draw card for her to gain popularity. And part of that has to do with her, her voluntary submission to the higher authority of the president. And that kind of ties back to traditional Javanese culture, which kind of still dominates Indonesian politics, where women are always constantly placed in a subordinate role and men are at the peak of the hierarchy. In what you wrote to me, you mentioned the word galak, that, yes. that quality, that galakness, I guess. Yes. Could you yes. explain what galak means to our English audience? Galak uh, can mean different things in diff- different contexts, I guess. So galak could be just somebody who has a bad temper but it seems these days, in especially in the field of politics, being galak is quite a good thing, especially when it's concerned with two, uh, with connected with two things. That is, showing uh, submission to a higher authority and also self-sacrifice and concern for the well-being of the people. So this galak personality trait, being being quick to anger and express emotion quite freely and put people in the in their place when they see somebody doing the wrong thing that has been quite uh, quite a, uh, a key way of gaining popularity and we don't only see that in the outsiders such as Bususi and Burisma we will also see that in somebody like Ahok so Ahok is also considered to be a political outsider coming from um, an ethnic Chinese background and a really non-elite political background. And he really gets away with this galak personality trait most of the time, uh, as long as he um, connects it to concern for the people and, and shows respect for his party and respect for the president and uh, the authority of the constitution. Why do some women in leadership still have to position themselves in a subordinate position? In order to gain acceptance, unfortunately, at this stage, without appearing to be a threat to the social order, women still have to put on this slightly submissive persona. But through that submissive persona, they do gain some leverage uh, by being able to engage in a, in a broader range of behavioural options that that would be off-limits to traditional members of the elite. On the other hand, people tend to be suspicious when a woman is seen to have too much power and is close to those who are in power. Could you explain why? During the presidential election, where Jokowi was nominated uh, and supported by the PDIP, Megawati was largely portrayed as a puppet master manipulating Jokowi. Based on my research, uh, her gender has a lot to do with it and that's quite historical, like I said before, according to traditional uh, Javanese 
predominant uh, Javanese culture, women are placed in a lower status compared to men. So even elite women cannot be uh, on the same level as a man. Based on what we've discussed about women in politics in Indonesia, how does it compare to the role of women in politics in Australia? The discourse on women's participation in politics kind of comes and goes in Australia. So at the moment you can see a deliberate effort when you watch uh, TV or any coverage of parliament in Australia, the female politicians are always positioned strategically in the, in the view of, of the camera behind the Prime Minister. So we give this illusion that we're being more inclusive in terms of gender. We can see someone such as Peter Credlin, who was Tony Abbott's advisor. Also, I, I noticed uh, a caricature, a cartoon in, in the uh, newspaper in Australia portraying her as a puppet master as well. So yeah, there does seem to be this underlying unease with women and their proximity to positions of high power. Going forward, how can women in leadership carry themselves? How should they carry themselves? Hmm. I think there are various options. So some of them play up the strong Galak kind of personality. And, and I mean, that's not a new thing. We, we've seen that with Margaret Thatcher as well in England, the, the Iron Lady, as they call her. And then we also have um, the idea of playing up their identity as a mother, being perceived as caring as well, and also just being quite submissive or um, the word is nurut in Indonesian, so maybe obedient. Hopefully we, we will see the options uh, for women's participation expanding as more and more women enter into the political realm and also our society, the, the power structures of our society gradually evolve uh, towards a more inclusive society so that women in positions of uh, high authority can be perceived on equal terms with men. But I do enjoy, I honestly do enjoy uh, listening to someone like Susie Pujastuti really revel in, in her position as a kind of left of field character, as an outsider coming in and shaking up uh, politics in Indonesia. The old elite guard in Indonesian politics was getting really tired and I think the people were becoming disengaged or disappointed with the way democracy was going. What can we do as citizens to ensure there are more female representatives in leadership positions and to combat these issues that we've discussed? My area of research is uh, about the way we use language to talk about people and I focus on women in politics. I think we really need to pay attention to the way we talk about women in positions of power. Are we indeed using sexist language that perpetuates women's exclusion from the political realm? So there, and I think we should also be very careful when we dismiss throwaway remarks uh, because what we say is a form of social action. And so with our language, 
we reconstitute and reflect uh, power structures and ideological formations in our country. So I think we really need to take a more critical attitude to the way especially the media portrays women and the way that we repeat what we hear on on in the media. Yeah, so I'm not saying that I'm not going as far to say is it's fake news, but I think it is important to take a critical attitude, but a critical attitude that seeks out inequalities uh, and seeks to redress them. What would you like to see change in the role of women in the world today? Mm, I think women are doing a pretty good job, definitely. Uh, so I, I think we need to see a, um, more recognition for what women actually do. So. I think, you know, when somebody is really distressed or um, lonely or sad, the person they think of is their mother, the person who raised them and gave birth to them. So women are really actually in quite an honoured position. But on the other hand, um, constantly, and we see it throughout um, different cultures around the world, women are kind of denigrated into uh, a lower status role, even though they deserve significant recognition for the contribution they're making to the world, not just as mothers, uh, but also as uh, students and professionals and artists. So I think there needs to be that recognition and also a more critical attitude when it comes to kind of latent sexism, things like sexist jokes uh, that are easily dismissed because, you know, they're just a joke. But I think we, we shouldn't be so accepting of, of those things and we should, yeah, just take a more critical eye. We like to wrap up every episode by learning about a fun fact or slang word from our guests. So Fitri, what's a cool fun fact or slang word that you would like to share from Indonesia? Hmm. I want to share baper, bawa perasaan, uh, or in English is carry too much emotion. Baper has been used very often in the recent uh, regional election. It's because all the supporter of candidates are actually baper bringing all their feeling every time they talk about election and it makes such a headache when they have a normal discussion they have to be baper and it kind of make uh, conflict even when you just want to discuss something as easy as uh, coffee in the afternoon then so baper is not suggested what's a cool fun fact or slang word that you would like to share from Australia Okay, well, I guess because I have been talking about politics, I'll share one. Uh, it was a new word that came up, I believe, last year. And it's called, it's not a word, it's an expression. It's called democracy sausage. And so that's to do with the sausage on bread that Australians can purchase while they're lining up to cast their vote, uh, usually at schools or public halls all throughout the country. So uh, usually it's run by uh, charities seeking uh, to do some fundraising and it's a nice distraction 
and it gives you something to eat while you line up and, and wait patiently to cast your vote. So everybody last year was talking about the democracy sausage and I think it became a, a trending trending word, trending topic on, on Twitter last year. I mean, I called it sausage sizzle when, mm. when we would have events at school. So they've kind of renamed it to a democracy yeah, sausage I, if it's yeah. before a vote. Yes, that's right. Thank you for listening to Oz Indo in 30. See you at our next episode. Terima kasih atas perhatian Anda untuk Oz Indo dalam 30. Sampai jumpa lagi di episode selanjutnya.